chapter 17, verse 1. So in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, after they traveled through, the we disappears in chapter 16, verse 40, which means that Luke is no longer with them, that Paul and his other traveling companions have moved on beyond Philippi. They were in Philippi in chapter 16, and they have left Philippi, and they have moved on to the next cities, and Luke is no longer with them. Not only does the we disappear at this point as they move on to the next cities, but the incredible detailedness also disappears. And so Luke, for whatever reason, we don't know why, is left behind in Philippi, either to do missions there or he has family there or whatever. He is left behind. Later in chapter 20, during Paul's third missionary journey, they will come back through, they will come back through Philippi and the we's begin again. And so it is clear that Luke then rejoins them again as they're going through Philippi. So it makes sense that Luke has been left behind in Philippi, stays there until Paul comes back through again, and then he rejoins Paul again and begins to move on with him in the missionary journeys after that. Chapter 17, verse 1. After they traveled through Amphipolis, Polynesia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And Paul went into the Jews in the synagogue, as he customarily did, and on three Sabbath days he addressed them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large group of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. But the Jews became jealous, and gathering together some worthless men from the travel and the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They attacked Jason's house, trying to find Paul and Silas, and to bring them out to the assembly. Paul, as customary, goes to the synagogue first. And for three weeks, three different Saturdays, he went into the synagogue preached the gospel, explained how Christ fulfilled the prophets, explained why Christ had to die and raise, raise again, and what this meant for them. And once again, there are many, many, many Jews who hear this and are attracted to it, and they begin to follow it. And once again, there are the elite Jews who basically see this as a threat to their power base. And there are many Greeks who are already beginning to believe in the First Testament and the God of the Bible, and who are now then interested in this Jesus connection as well. But the elite are willing to join worthless scoundrels, horribly corrupt people known for bad dealings and dishonest trade and all kinds of stuff. And they're willing to pay them in order to stir up trouble against Paul and Silas. So this says something. The Jews are touting the elite that they are the guardians of the religious faith, that they are the righteous people, and that they're protecting the Torah, and they're protecting the Word of God, and yet they themselves are violating the Mosaic Law and, the, and, and paying corrupt people to start trouble against an innocent person who basically just disagrees with them on the theological issues and hasn't really wronged them in any kind of way. And so they begin to cause problems. Now the crowd gets riled up. And once again, when a crowd gets riled up, that whatever reason that they've been angry for, they often lose sight of what they're angry about. And then it begins to spread so much that other people join them and don't even know what they're angry about. 
And eventually they're like, hey, I thought this was like the anti-them group party. And like, and everybody like is there for different things, right? They're just angry. And they see this. And they come to Jason's house. Now Paul had been staying with Jason. Or been at least connected to him in some kind of a way. And so they went to Jason's house. And they tried to find Paul and Silas there to bring him out to the assembly. Verse 6. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city officials, screaming, These people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them as guests. They are all acting against Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king named Jesus. And they caused confusion among the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. After the city officials had received bail from Jason and the others, they, um, they released them. So the city cannot find Paul. They do not know how to hurt Paul and Silas. And so they go for the next best thing. The person who's been taking care of Paul or been traveling around with him or taking him into their house and they decide to put him in prison. And yet bail has been posted for Jason. So Jason at least must have been somewhat prominent enough that he was protected from being just attacked in any kind of way just because he's a mere threat. We see these stories over and over again. Sometimes it feels repetitive, like right with the Gospels. You're like miracle after miracle after miracle. Hatred after hatred after hatred. Angry crowd after angry crowd. But what this is emphasizing is not only is there incredible opposition to the faith. It's never encouraging to say, be encouraged. There will always be opposition to you. But what is encouraging is that there was opposition even for the apostles especially for the apostles, for Paul and the people. From the very, very beginning, the people of God have been opposed. The people of God have been attacked. And what this does is two major things, I think, is there is no, like, why me? Because you're not being excluded. Welcome to the body of Christ. They will hate you like they hated me, Jesus says. So it keeps you from feeling this, I'm alone. I'm the only one that's going through this. Nobody understands. Or why, why did I join this thing if it's going to cause this when you realize that you're not alone in it? But the other thing that it does, despite the opposition, despite the persecution, the gospel keeps thriving. It keeps pressing on. Nothing can stop the word of God. It affirms that even though you may take a beating, maybe you even lose your life, but as you look at the grand scheme of Christianity and people getting persecuted, decade after decade after decade, century after century, the gospel keeps spreading. And it keeps, nothing puts it down. And it confirms and encourages you that you haven't picked something that is weak. You feel weak when the world hates you. You feel ignored. You feel marginalized. You feel unloved. You feel what all the, like, right? All those possible words that could possibly go through you and feeling. But it's not weak. It's not weak. It's the power of God that keeps thriving and keeps going. And it lets you know that what you're doing will accomplish something. Because even when Paul is beaten to an inch of his life, the person keeping guard of the prison wants to know about this salvation. And his whole family comes to Christ. And that's what you're to focus on. That's what you're to look to. Yes, these people at you hate you. 
They're stirring up um, false accusations against you, trying to go after your reputation, that you're, you feel depressed and miserable and alone. But what we need is we need to take our eyes off of them and look over here and see the people who are wowed by it. And sometimes they're the same, and sometimes they're not. And so when we see this over and over and over again, repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature. And repetition is how points are made. If I'm going through the forest and I see all these evergreens, and then a giant cedar pops up somewhere, I say, oh, that's kind of odd and out of place. But then a few feet later, I see another cedar pop up and I'm like, oh, that's kind of coincidental. And then a few feet later, I see another one pop up and then another one. And then I notice a pattern. And patterns always communicate intentionality. And that's what we're seeing here, is you're seeing a pattern. And when you see a pattern, this starts falling into a scientific method. And when you test it over and over and over again, and you keep getting the same result from chapter to chapter to chapter, that though they're being persecuted, it's not stopping the word of God. And it's not just Paul, and it's not just Peter, and it's not just Philip, it's not just Stephen, it's all of them together. You begin to realize that this is what the gospel is going to bring, persecution. But that persecution is also going to bring a flourishing of the kingdom of God. And this is the way that God works. And so this is why we see story after story after story. The other reason you see these story after story after story is because you see sometimes God does miraculously save you. Instantaneously, no pain. Sometimes God allows you to go through the pain and then miraculously saves you. And sometimes he lets you just go through the pain and then you have to heal naturally if you even do heal because sometimes it kills you. But either way, what it does is it keeps you from expecting a genie in the bottle. Well, don't worry. God's going to save me anyways. And then you don't just carelessly throw yourself in there. Or you don't just think, I can do this because God will save me. It makes you begin to realize that there are real costs to following Christ. And it, once again, makes sure that you are truly committed and you're doing this for the right reasons and not for just some spectacle or some amazing public show of power that could begin to make you think that you have the ability to do this and get out of this. God is using this suffering in this kind of a way. And we see this over and over again. The gospel continues to spread. Luke says in these verses that Paul was reasoning with them. Reasoning with them. And what this means, he's reasoning from scriptures. We see this word again pop up in Acts chapter 17, 18, 4, 19, 8, several places. This word does not mean preaching. This word does not that he was preaching the gospel, that he was just standing there and giving the message. What this word communicates is that he's presenting reasonable, rational, logical arguments for why it's legit. Now, maybe today we think, well, isn't that one and the same? But that's because we've been around for a long time and we've seen all kinds of preachers. But there are some preachers that just get up and just say, this is what the gospel is, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul was specifically doing in place after place after place after place was that he was reasoning. He wasn't just saying, Christ is God, Christ died on the cross, Christ was raised from the grave, Christ did this and this, believe. He was giving logical, 
reasonable, rational arguments proving from Scripture that Christ connects all the dots. And we need a lot more messages like that. And there are lots of people who do this. But we need the ability to rationalize and think. Remember, our faith is experiential and rational. Both. It's emotional and rational. Both. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's engaging in dialogue and debate over the meaning of scriptural texts. He is not just solely appealing into emotions. Yes, the faith is an emotional faith. I am a Christian because I have an experiential emotional encounter with God. I've experienced this many, many, many times. But I'm also a Christian because it's a rational faith. It makes sense. It logically connects the dots. Can I rationalize and think through every single angle and every dot of Christianity in God? No, because he's beyond me in my logic, right? But it's not just blind and empty where I'm like, hey, that feels really good. Let's go for it. And we tend to do one or the other. And so what Paul is saying is that he's not just getting up there and saying, appealing to their emotions, like a third wave Big Tent Great Awakening revival. Okay, first, second Great Awakening, good. Third Great Awakening, bad. It was purely just emotional appeals to try to make you feel something and get you to accept Christ. It's not just a fire and brimstone scare the crap out of you into Christianity. Not that those don't have their time and place, but they can never be divorced from reasoning. Reasoning. Showing people why this makes sense. And so he examined the scriptures with them and showed them how this all worked. So all Paul is claiming is that Jesus has come to save us, that Jesus is God. And what a lot of people say, well, what big deal? The Romans believe in lots of gods, right? What's just one more God? And in fact, a lot of them didn't have a problem with that. But if at any time that Paul said anything that suggested Jesus is king of the Jews or that he's bringing a new kingdom in some kind of way, one could easily take his words and twist them and claim that he's going against the direct edict of Tiberius. That one is only allowed to talk about the king or the emperor of Rome, and there's only one legitimate empire and kingdom, and that is Rome. At this point, the Roman Empire was starting to become more and more afraid of the Parthian Empire, and they did not take well to threats outside. One could easily make a charge against Paul that he's claiming to support another king and another empire that's going to come and overthrow Rome. And Rome would take this very seriously. And Roman citizen or not, he would be crushed by Rome. The trial would be very quick and very swift because they didn't tolerate these things. So Paul and Silas move on. Verse 10. The brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And at once during the night when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if all these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with quite a few prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul had also proclaimed the word of God in Berea, they came there too, inciting and disturbing the crowds. So Paul makes it to Berea. 
And Berea is along the track, you can see on the map. And what is different here is there is no Jews here, or at least not enough Jews to be mentioned, that are actually angry at Paul and Silas for preaching the gospel and proclaiming Christ, or that they're opposed to them. They actually are more open-minded. Luke literally says open-minded. And they are listening intently. And not only that, they pull out their scrolls and they begin to read the scriptures from the Bible that Paul has been quoting to see with their own eyes how they connect. And probably there was much discussion of what about this and what about this. And many of them start coming to faith. This is the only Jewish city. Well, it's not a Jewish city. This is the only city where there are Jews there that Paul has gone to where they have just universally accepted him. Not everybody converted universally, but nobody opposed him on a massive scale. They begin to fall in line with his message. They begin, and they see it with their own eyes. They don't just hear, but they go to scripture and they read and they investigate. And it becomes reasonable and rational to them that this is exactly what scripture is saying. And they begin to convert. And so do many Greeks. Yet, because Satan has nobody in his control there to destroy them, he riles up the Greeks, the, the Jews from Thessalonica, to come down the road and cause problems with them in Berea. Verse 14. Then the brothers sent Paul away to the coast at once, but Silas and Timothy remained in Berea, and those who accompanied Paul escorted him as far as Athens, and after receiving an order from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Fearing for Paul's life, because this is not just a crowd that kind of got angry at Paul, this is a crowd that's like a heat-seeking missile that is following him and trying to come for him. And they're literally targeting him. And so they tell Paul to go on to the next city, which would be Athens, which is quite a zigzagging sailing trip through a bunch of islands to get down to Athens and Greece. Why Paul then has Silas and Timothy stay behind? Probably to make sure that they just don't run away from the Bereans, who are innocent victims in all of this. And so when Paul leaves, the Jews of Thessalonica have no reason to be there anymore, and they're either going to go back to Thessalonica or keep chasing Paul to Athens. But mostly they're not going to chase Paul to Athens because Athens is huge, and they're going to be a drop in the bucket in Athens compared to Berea. So most likely they're going to go back. And then Silas and um, Timothy, who are not as public targets, can then wrap up the strengthening of the believers there and making sure there's elders in place and all those things that Paul tends to do after many, many people come to Christ. He then makes sure that they're well-discipled, they're well-educated, and that there's elders in place before he leaves. And Timothy and Silas begin to do this. And we're going to see this more and more often. Whereas we keep going, Paul's going to lead them behind more and more and more to kind of wrap things up. So it's kind of this like um, slinky, the slinky dog kind of effect where Paul is moving and leaving them behind. They catch up and just keep going like that. And that's an odd analogy for missionary work, but it popped in my head. They go on to Athens. 